following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 24th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you get settled, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 16. And while you're headed to Psalm 16, I will just give you a little bit of a preview of what's ahead in the coming weeks. Uh, We've spent June kind of journeying through bits and pieces of the Psalms with an eye towards this idea of blessedness or, or happy or joyful in the Lord. And we've been kind of coming back to Psalm 1 and the, the picture that, that David gives us in Psalm 1 or the psalmist gives us in Psalm 1 of that well-rooted, well-nourished believer who, whose leaf, even in the, the inescapable and the real realities of sorrow in life, doesn't wither, but who yet for, for God's glory, God's purposes, and in God's time is able to bear the fruit of the work of God's Spirit in their life for the enriching of others. We've been kind of considering that joy, and we're going to do that some more this morning, but starting next week, let me know, let you know what's going to happen. Over a series of weeks, kind of intermittently through the rest of the summer, you're going to hear from different pastors here at Redemption Hill, from both uh, here in the north side and over at the 400. You're going to hear from different pastors, and, and the aim of what they're going to be doing is, is preaching from a particular text in God's Word that has been important to them in a unique way at some point in their life. So it isn't so much a series through a particular book or a particular topic, other than the topic being how God's Word has dealt with them in their life in a particular way. One, so that you'll begin to experience not only the gifts that God has in the church and the different teaching gifts, but you'll get to know a little bit more about the pastors as well as you hear how they have related to God's Word and how God's Word has been impactful to them in a very specific and and unique way. So that'll be kind of intermittent through the rest of the summer. I'll be sprinkled in there at different times and different ways and based on travel schedules and all that kind of stuff. So look forward to that. I may come back to the Psalms at some point in there somewhere, but this will be the last week that we're doing this particular kind of focus. So that's what's coming. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Psalm 16 if you're already there. We're going to continue this morning and I'm going to read it, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to see what God has for us together. So Psalm 16, this is, this is God's word to us this morning. It's a song, a a psalm of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the 
rich privilege that it is to be gathered together this morning. That in your kindness and grace to us, you woke us up this morning in the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. You have drawn us here that we might hear your voice through your word, that you might do the very thing that you have promised, that your word together with your spirit will do the work of continuing to establish and nourish and nurture and root our hearts into your grace that we might increasingly reflect the image and likeness of your son. Well, that's a miracle for that to happen. And so we ask this morning that you would do that very thing for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I don't think there would be many people in the room that would disagree with me, but I don't think that joy is the driving or shaping force when it comes to the daily news. I don't think it's ever been. Now, granted, I'm not a very old man. Maybe before my day, joy somehow shaped the daily news, but at least in my lifetime, and for the majority of you in your lifetime, I don't think it's... It's unreasonable to think that joy is not what's shaping the news these days. Joy is not the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about how the news makes me feel. Whether I read it in the paper, which I like to do whenever I stumble across one, because I think they still print those. Whether I watch it on TV, which I really don't do. We don't watch the news partly because of this. Or I'm reading the news to keep up with things online on some of the news outlets on the internet. Or I'm hearing people's opinions through social media 24 hours a day. Pain or suffering. Injustice here and injustice there. Unspeakable evil here and unspeakable evil there. They are in our face all day long, every day. And that doesn't even begin to scratch the way that I feel when I become face-to-face with my own awareness of my own personal internal dysfunctions. Everything around us in our world today is telling us that there are more things now than ever to be anxious and insecure about. As one writer said, our world today is made up of a joy-robbing cocktail of anxiety. But I love that he didn't leave it there. He said, this is the very cocktail that Jesus drank to the dregs at the cross so that we could drink from the fountain of his life and receive the security and joy that are his. We've been talking about being a people known. In the coming years, the coming decades, if God gives it to us, being a people known for our joy in the Lord our happiness in the Lord, the blessedness the psalmist keeps talking about. Because here's the thing, if we're really honest with ourselves, and I say this with all love about all of us, myself included, I don't think any of us are in any danger right now of being too happy in God. I don't think we're, we're on the edge of crossing the precipice of being too overjoyed in God. That's why we've taken some time for the last few weeks to consider what it would look like to be a people marked by and known for this joy that the Bible keeps talking about. This well-rooted, well-nourished soul, resilient in the face of inevitable sorrows and difficulty, resilient in the face of joy-robbing realities of life, fruitful and happy in the midst of it. Secure in the midst of a world of insecurity. Satisfied in the midst of a world of discontentment. 
Psalm 16 is a song. It's a prayer written by David. And it's a prayer for and a song about security and joy in a time of uncertainty and insecurity. In fact, the more I've considered it and thought about it this week and in the past couple of weeks, maybe I'll change my mind or God will change my mind in the next couple of weeks, but I I would like to think that this psalm or this song might become our collective song. It's an amazing song because just like David, you and I are intimately familiar with the realities of uncertainty and insecurity. Let's look at what David has to say here. He he starts by crying out to God, preserve me, O God. So something is causing David to feel the need for preservation. Something is happening that is causing David to cry out to God to preserve him. Now, he doesn't tell us explicitly what was happening that causes him to cry out to God for this preservation. But as we read through Psalm 16 and you listen with the ear to hear what might be coming at David that would cause him to cry out for preservation, you can begin to get a sense of what was going on. You can get a sense of what some of the prevailing factors might have been that were causing David to feel the insecurity or the anxiousness of heart or soul or even body that would cause him to cry out to God for preservation. And as we look at them really quickly, just to set the psalm up, I want you to hear them and realize that we might be separated from David by thousands of years, generations, and cultures, but there's nothing new under the sun, ultimately. Just like David each and every single one of us is tempted to fear the uncertainty of tomorrow. Look down at verse 8. David said, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. The uncertainty of tomorrow was threatening to shake David. If we're all honest, we all fear being shaken by what tomorrow holds. You can't control tomorrow. You can't predict tomorrow. You can't avoid tomorrow. If you're honest, you know as well as I do that tomorrow can come and your life can change on a dime. It can be going in one direction and in a completely unpredictable way, according to your eyes and your wisdom, everything can change. And you and I live in the presence of that uncertainty. Something was pressing on David, causing him to respond to this reality of potentially being shaken. This uncertainty of tomorrow is just one ingredient in this cocktail of insecurity and anxiety. Another ingredient that we see if we just listen carefully to what David is saying is that like him, Each and every single one of us is also tempted and potentially knocked off of our perch by the fear and the inevitability of death itself. Verses 9 and 10, David says, Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place or the realm of the dead. David is contemplating for some particular reason, maybe it's the inevitability of the reality or something going on in his life. David is having to deal with the reality of death itself. And as a culture, 
you know as well as I do, we spend multiplied billions of dollars every year trying to stave off the reality of death. And I don't know who it was who said it first. I'm sure it's centuries old, but every century a different writer tries to claim credit for it. But for all of our efforts to try to stave off death and think that we've beaten it for another day or another year, or maybe for some of us even a lifetime, death, the writer said, makes fools of us all in the end. Take the uncertainty of the future that drives you and I to try to build stability in our life, economically, psychologically, emotionally. Trying to plan and work and predict and strive and anticipate what's coming, but yet we know in our hearts we don't know what's next. Mix that with the inevitability and inescapability of death, and you and I can find ourselves very deceived. In 1960, John F. Kennedy accepted Lyndon Johnson as his vice presidential running mate in the upcoming election. Now, some of you might remember this. I won't ask you to raise your hand. The rest of you might have read about it at some point. I had to read about it. Most in Kennedy's camp were not pleased at his his acceptance of Lyndon Johnson. They didn't think Johnson was a wise running mate for Kennedy. And so they all kind of gruffed about it. But there is a, a, a collected work of documents that's been released now about Kennedy and about his time in his presidency. And he had a conversation with one of his aides who was particularly upset about him accepting Lyndon Johnson as the running mate. And in this conversation, Kennedy said this, I'm 43 years old. I'm a young man. I'm not going to die in office. So the vice presidency doesn't mean anything. We can all deceive ourselves when it comes to dealing with the uncertainty of tomorrow and the inevitability of death. These things can shake our confidence. They can multiply our anxiousness. They can rob our joy. But, but David, facing these pressures, these, these, this cocktail around him, there's something that's established his heart. His joy isn't being robbed. His leaf isn't beginning to wither. But there's a third pressure that was kind of weighing in on David, and and it's one that I think we're all intimately familiar with as well. The third ingredient to this joy-robbing cocktail, so to speak, we can call it peer pressure. Anybody ever face peer pressure? Even out of junior high and high school? It's an everyday reality for us. Look at verses three and four. David says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. Sounds good so far, right? Let's look at verse four. For the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. You realize that David and God's people were not the only people that lived in the land. They were surrounded by peoples who did not worship or believe in the one true God. And idolatry has always been a powerful draw for David and the rest of God's people. The Old Testament is littered with story after story of the cycle of God's people being lured away from joy in God and drawn to the false hopes of idols. 
Every single day, David and the rest of God's people lived in the pressure to capitulate or give in to the world around them. If they wanted a successful harvest that year, go and figure out what the appropriate offering and sacrifice is to the fertility gods. You need to make that. You want to be successful in battle? Well, go appease the war gods. Want to be wealthy? Want to be beautiful? Want to be successful? Go find the relevant gods, figure out what the appropriate offering or sacrifice is, make it to them in order to try to get from them what it is you think you want to buy them off. This is what David's talking about in these drink offerings of blood. These were the prescribed offerings or sacrifices that the various gods were command, people would be commanded to make to those gods in order to get those things. David and the rest of God's people lived in the ever-present pressure of giving their hearts and their hopes over to idols. The pressure to pursue joy in empty idols. It's no less alluring today to us than it was to David and God's people then. Success, wealth, victory, power, beauty, they become things that you and I believe we have to have, just like they were for people then. So you take all of these ingredients and you put them all together. This cocktail of joy-robbing insecurity and anxiety, living under the pressure to conform to the world around you, day in and day out, uncertain about tomorrow and the imminent reality of death being on the horizon, you and I face the pressure, the temptation to join in the empty race to make the right sacrifices to the right things and the right offerings to ensure that we might obtain what we believe we have to have. There's nothing new under the sun. Yet the sorrows of those who run after another God, David says, shall multiply. To the more we give, the more we sacrifice, the harder we chase those things, the more enslaved we become. And the sorrows that they bring into our life, rather than what we think they're actually going to provide, they simply multiply that compound interest. And joy is drained. See, friends, if we're going to be a people known for our joy, we're going to have to know where our true security and satisfaction are found. If we're going to live in a fallen world as we do in the ever-present anxiety-producing cocktail that is what's offered to us, we're going to have to remember that this is the very cocktail that Jesus drank to the dregs at the cross so that we could drink from the fountain of his life and receive the security and the joy that's his. See, of all the things that David helps us to see in Psalm 16, there's one overriding reality that each line and each statement builds upon. The overriding reality of Psalm 16 for God's people is simply this. Your security in an uncertain and insecure world, and therefore your joy, is rooted in the faithfulness of God for you. This is what David is going to say over and over and over again. After David makes this petition for God to preserve him, David immediately turns to God. Preserve me, O God. And then he turns. 
for in you I take refuge. David begins to look outside of himself and his own resources for stabilizing his own soul. And he looks to God. And in verses 2 through 8, what David is doing is simply reshaping his perspective. David is confronting the sources of his insecurity by declaring what is true about his life in God. You are my Lord, he said in verse 2. I have no good apart from you. Yes, the temptation to pursue joy and security and understanding and identity and all these other things is ever-present. Watching people go after it, watching people experience some measure of what looks like joy and happiness. I'm so tempted to think that's where it's found. Maybe if I just diversify everything, I'll come out all right in the end, but I have no good apart from you. The saints, verse 3, they are the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. I mean, have you realized that the children of God delight in one another as a gift from God for our joy? As C.S. Lewis said, you and I are bound by a common affection. We're actually a gift to each other for our joy. Verse 5, David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He's reframing his understanding of who God is for him in light of all of these pressures and insecurities bearing down on him. The lines, he says in verse 6, have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord, verse 7, who gives me counsel. Verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Because he is at my right hand, the uncertainty of tomorrow won't shake me, won't be able to knock me off course. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know someone who does. Verses 2 through 8, David is going headlong into the insecurities that are pressing in on him and he's pushing back against them, reshaping his perspective based on what he knows to be true about his life in God. And then listen to verse 11. I actually thought about doing the whole sermon on verse 11. We could spend an entire summer in Psalm 16, just phrase by phrase, verse by verse. We could spend the next month in verse 11 alone. Verse 11, David turns and we begin to see what God is actually doing in the midst of this. You make known to me the path of life, David says. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, I'm facing the insecurity of anxiety, of pressure and uncertainty. And God is making himself known to me. God is bringing me into his presence. God is drawing me close that I experience the joy that is his, the fullness of his joy and his pleasures now and forever. Friends, David had come to the realization and the understanding in his heart that God himself is his ultimate good. 
to the world around David and the pressure of the world around him, pursued all these various gods as though they were dispensers of the good that they sought. I don't know what all the different idols look like. I don't know what all the different temples look like. But in my mind, I like to picture all the idols of the land like big giant Pez dispensers. That's how I see them. They've all got different heads and they're all different colors. But ultimately, what people would do is they would come to them seeking to get out from them the dispensing of whatever good they promised. So they made the sacrifices, they brought the offerings, they have it pop back and the good would come out. The candy comes out. You get what you want, right? That is how the world pursued all of these different gods. But if you listen closely to David and you listen closely to what he's saying, you begin to see that David didn't simply want God for what he had to offer. David wanted God for who he is in himself. Apart from you, I have no good. Apart from you, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter how handsome I am, how strong I am, how powerful I am, how wealthy I am, how successful in the eyes of everyone else I am. Apart from you, I have no good. You remember the moment in, in, in Moses' life when They were on the edge of the promised land and he goes up on the mountain and he's meeting with the Lord and God shows him the land, the promised land. This is going to be yours. You're going to go in there. Well, Moses won't go in there, but my people are going to go in there. But here's the deal. I'm not going to go with you. Do you remember that? When God said, it's all yours. Here's what I promised. You're going to have it, but I'm not going to go. Do you remember what Moses said? He said, I don't want it if you're not going to go. I don't want it. If you don't go, and if you're not with us, and if we don't have you, I don't want any of this stuff. In the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis said, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Friends, David had come to the realization in his heart by the grace of God that God himself is his ultimate good. And the song begs the reader and the singer to ask themselves, is that true for me? Do I believe that? You see, a key to the good that you and I have being grounded in God himself alone The key to God being our ultimate good as the foundation for our joy and our security. The key to that is being able to agree with David regarding who you believe God is for you. See, there's something beautiful in the first two verses that that gets missed if you don't really zero in on it when you read it in English. It's there, but you've got to know what you're reading. The Hebrew reader who would have read this originally or heard it sung or sang it originally in Hebrew would have caught the distinctions that David is making that's expressing who he has begun to believe God is for him that then grounds him in this reality that allows him to experience this joy and this security and this stability. See, when David says, preserve me, O God, he uses the very common colloquial name for a God. It's El. It's used in the Bible of false gods and of the one true God. It's just a common name. It means strong one or mighty one. That's what it means. But then when he goes on, he says, I say to the Lord, 
Now that particular word that we write Lord there, you can look at the way it's written in your Bible, it is translating the personal relational name of God that he revealed to Moses when Moses said, who am I gonna say has sent me? And God said, tell them that I am. That is God's personal proper name of relationship and commitment. That is the name of the one true God who committed himself to his people, who made him theirs and made them his. It's the commitment of relationship that's there. And then David goes on to say, you are my Lord. That Lord doesn't translate Jehovah or Yahweh. It translates the Hebrew, translates the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master or a person in authority. See, what David is saying is that he has come to the realization that God is the one who knows him, who loves him, whose eye is upon him. As he says in other songs, who knew him before he was born, while he was in his mother's womb, who knitted him in his mother's womb purposefully according to his design. I say to my God who knows me and loves me, you are my king. Apart from you, I have no good. You know me, you love me, you preserve me, you protect me, and you lead me, and you guide me for my joy and for your glory. You're my king. You see, it's only when the Almighty becomes your king that you begin to know him not as the dispenser of goods, but as your greatest good himself. He becomes your safest and most satisfying place. David makes another allusion there. It's so beautiful, and it brings us to this. I, I honestly believe when David is, is writing these first two verses, and he's crying out to the one true God who has known him and committed himself to his people and preserved his people and protected his people and leads and guides his people as their king and as their Lord, as their Adonai. When David cries out and says, preserve me, for in you I take refuge, I honestly believe that David is actually alluding back to the cities of refuge that God had established when he brought his people into the land. You might be familiar with this, you might not be, but when God established his people, he designated certain cities as cities of refuge. So if you accidentally killed someone, you could actually flee to a city of refuge where you would have protection from the revenge or the justice that would be sought by maybe a family member or a friend of the one who had died. Begin to put it all together. David is saying, you, the, the one who has known me and committed yourself to me, kept your promises to me, the mighty one, the almighty one who leads and who guides me, you are my city of refuge, my soul-satisfying haven of rest. See, those cities of refuge in the Old Testament they were simply foreshadowings of the ultimate place of refuge that God's people would come to know that would keep them safe and preserve them from the justice of God's wrath that they deserved. Those cities of refuge were just foreshadowings to the reality that is ours by the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus. 
He is the one who took the justice of God for our sins, for our transgressions, for our iniquities in our place so that by the grace of God through faith in him, God might be our refuge from his justice for our sins. As you and I, through the grace of God, flee to him as our refuge, he preserves us. He loves us. He hides us. He protects us. See, sorrows will multiply for those who chase this security and joy in something or someone other than Jesus. See, it's not about not wanting joy. It's not about not wanting security. It's not about even in the ultimate things of wanting to know the forgiveness and the security of God. It's about looking for those things in the wrong places. And David, David is helping us to see and remind us that the key to this abiding joy, it, this joy and security that doesn't wither, that doesn't fade away in the insecure moments, in the uncertain moments, in the pressured times, the key to this lasting joy is knowing God as your greatest good. It's being able to say with David that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. That the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. It's saying you, you are my beautiful inheritance. In you, because of you, who I am in you, who you are for me. Wherever it falls, in the uncertainty of tomorrow, my lines have fallen in pleasant places. Apart from you, I have no good. With you, nothing else I have is any better. Friends, one of my most favorite parts of this psalm is down in verse 11, when David reminds us that this good this ultimate good that God is for us, this joy that's unshakable and doesn't wither, this security that stabilizes us and creates a resilience in us in this life, it's not something you have to go figure out and find on your own. God makes known to you the fullness and the reality of his joy. You make known to me the path of life. What an amazing reality to consider this joy that God intends for us to have, this security that God gives us that stabilizes us in this life, allows us to experience the fullness of his pleasure that the fruit of his spirit might come out of our lives for the good of others regardless of what may come today or tomorrow. It's not something you have to figure out. In fact, Apart from him doing what only he can do, and as Paul says, opening up the eyes of your heart that you might see his glory, his majesty, his might, and his grace in the face of his son, you won't be able to experience it. He's the one who actually awakens your heart. And he's the one that can awaken your heart personally. I was thinking about it this week, and I don't think I've ever really thought about it in particular to Psalm 16. But there when David says, you make known to me the path of life, it hit me, and at least it stood out to me, 
that he's speaking in a personal way. I think it's so easy for us to talk about God being the one who can make these things known. But David says, no, you make known to me. Not y'all, not the group, not the possibility. You see, it's well and good to know that God can save. But the depth of this joy and the power of this security and this satisfaction that David is talking about, that the Psalms are talking about, it comes from knowing that God has done this for you. That you don't have to live vicariously through the joys and the security of God and the lives of other people. You don't have to live on the fringes of God's grace hoping to catch crumbs that fall out of other people's lives. No, it's you. He can make known to you personally the path to life, the fullness of his joy, his pleasures at his right hand forevermore. All you got to do is call out to him. All you've got to do is call out to him. It's a stunning realization when you begin to catch in your heart that God actually takes joy in creating joy in your heart. That God delights in helping you delight in him. God makes this joy known to us. And the fullness of this joy, the fullness, the complete to the nth degree satisfaction, that's what it means, the fullness, there isn't a square inch that isn't filled by this, the fully satisfying joy of God, he says is ours in him forever. At his right hand are pleasures, plural, endlessly varied fully satisfying joy and pleasures forever. The soul-satisfying joy and security of God that you and I now taste by God's grace in measure. And every single day as we walk with him, we taste to greater degrees. As he opens up and changes those taste buds in our heart and we're more satisfied in him and more secure in him and more delighted in him and more stable in him and less shaken by the world around us. Those things, that joy, that security that we taste and measure now, we get in fullness forever. And it can't be taken away. It can't be lost. Jesus was encouraging his own disciples with this right before he would go to the cross. In John chapter 16 and verse 22, you don't have to go there, I'll I'll read it to you. Jesus said, "You, you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. David said, at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. Friends, do you know what, or better yet, who is at the right hand of God right now? Do you know? The resurrected almighty king, the son of God, the Lord, Adonai, Jesus Christ. He is at the right hand of God right now. He is the guarantee 
on God's promise of our eternal fullness of joy in Him. Peter, when he stood up at Pentecost under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit after the resurrection of Jesus, everybody had gathered for the festival, right? Peter stands up. He preaches that first blistering gospel sermon, right? Go to Acts chapter 2 at some point this week. You'll see that in that sermon, Peter quotes Psalm 16, verse 11, and he tells us that when David wrote this, he wrote this prophetically speaking ultimately of Jesus and the security of this joy. And after he quotes Psalm 16, verse 11, Peter says this, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. He died, he's still dead. But being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that Jesus was not abandoned to Sheol. His flesh didn't see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore now exalted at the right hand of God. At the right hand of God. God forevermore is a flesh and blood man, the very Son of God Himself. One writer said, The security of your eternal joy is the Son of God Himself, made to be a man like you, so that your joy in the presence of God could never be taken away from you. Do you catch that? Your security. The security of your eternal joy is Jesus himself made to be a man like you so that your joy in the presence of God can never be taken away from you. If you are in Christ, then God could no sooner deny you than he could deny himself. God is at your right hand. And God has placed you at his right hand in his son. Did you catch that? The Almighty is at your right hand. Let tomorrow come. Let the uncertainty remain. Let the pressures pretend to mound. He is at your right hand. Can't be shaken. He, by His grace, has placed you in His Son at His right hand. Where His joy is at its full. And His pleasures are forevermore. Friends, do you see the trajectory in the life and the song? When you come to God in some sense as a refugee, looking for refuge, looking for forgiveness, looking for protection, looking for preservation from the justice of God himself against your sin, God takes you by his grace through faith in his son, and he gives you refuge in himself. And you go from being a refugee looking for preservation to being an heir with an inheritance that can't even begin to be imagined. And when by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, you find your refuge in him, it can't be taken away. Nobody can take you out. No one can take you out of his hand. Friends, the Westminster Divines, and they were trying to figure out how to best continually teach these realities to the church. They started their great catechism with this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
God created you with the intention that you would spend your life enjoying Him. Enjoying Him as your refuge, as your King, as your Savior. One of my heroes took a little poetic liberty with that, and I think he did it good. He said the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. God is most glorified in and by you and I when we enjoy Him for who He is. As you and I increasingly enjoy God as our greatest good, He is glorified, and you and I are living for the chief end for which He created us. Friends, my prayer is that in the coming weeks, months, and years that God would give them to us, maybe Psalm 16 would become a sweet song to our hearts for His glory and our joy. May He be our greatest good. May our deepest delights and satisfaction come from knowing Him. May we be able to say with David, today, tomorrow, the next day, with you, my lines have fallen in pleasant places. May we be a people known for our enjoyment of God, enjoyment of His grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. God, to know you for who you are and to enjoy you for yourself takes the miracle of your Holy Spirit opening up our hearts to see you for who you are. God, it's one thing for us to know what you can do. It's another thing to have experienced the sweetness of your grace. And so we ask this morning that you would do that very thing, that very miracle in our hearts this morning. For some in here, it'll be the first time we've ever tasted of your grace, that you would call us and prompt us by your spirit in repentance to cry out to you for preservation, to cry out to you for forgiveness and redemption, to find our refuge in you, to know the sweet joy of your forgiveness. For many of us, it might just be a calling out and and asking of you to restore the joy in our hearts of knowing you for who you are. The pressures and the the cocktail of the world in which we live in has drawn away our sense of satisfaction. We, We found ourselves trying to diversify our interest in joy. Lord, for your glory and our greatest good, Lord, delight us in yourself again. Help us to find everything else, a, a pale imitation. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com dot com.